When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm all right. Thank you. A bit warm, but mustn't complain about that. How are you, Alex? You had a busy weekend, I think. Oh, my goodness. I did. We've had absolutely wild rain here, though. It's been wonderful for the garden, but it's quite extraordinary haven't you had that in the UK too in parts we have it for about 35 minutes at a time (laughs) everything gets completely battered and then an hour later it's all dry again but it's good for the snails of which more later yes never let us forget the snails (laughs) we have become the official snail podcast I love it I have had quite a busy weekend because I was at the Boris Festival of Writing and Ideas in County Carlow just down the road from where I live in Ireland and I had such a lovely lovely time one of the highlights of which was watching a slightly surreal event in which Jeremy Irons and his dog interviewed David Baddiel oh that's splendid what was it just that his dog was there with him he was very very close to the stage and very interested in what kind of dog um fluffy one (laughs) ah yes large fluffy one (laughs) Could say more accurately, well, had it been a cat, but it wasn't. Was it that his dog loves him so much he has to get yes. close to the stage? Oh, absolutely wow. couldn't leave him. But it was very entertaining because David Badil was talking, amongst other things, about things like, you know, the existence of trolls on social media. And when you hear Jeremy Irons' rather sort of, you know, as we know, rich tones, mm. fruity tones saying, and what is a troll you think you're in for a slightly one-off event mine were perhaps more straightforward than that but they were nonetheless wonderful I interviewed Ian McEwan which was just marvellous but had I interviewed him only a few hours later I would have been able to call him Sir Ian McEwan Oh, was it just hours, hours that he was, hours. He was a commoner and then hours, hours before later. I might have come onto the stage kind of bowing or something. Yeah, I he suppose. could have genuflected and gone off backwards and stuff. I always enjoy talking to him a lot. And he reflected on Cormac McCarthy, we'll be talking about in a little while, and on again, Sir Martin Amos, posthumously so. Um, and it was just really great. And I also had the most lovely conversations with Elaine Feeney, an Irish 
poet and novelist whom I enormously admire, Keelan Hughes and Paul Murray, and a really special conversation with Claire Keegan, who one doesn't often, Hmm. you know, that often see in events, who was just so fantastic about talking about the way to read and the importance of deep reading. And one of the things that she so frequently says to her writing students, she's taught for a long, long time, is that actually read deeply and read slowly, and that will help you to be a writer. And she also announced her a new book, a new book from Claire Keegan. Oh, wonderful. So late in the day, which is a, a short story. We may we may ask Russell to join us, I think, Russell Williams, the TLS's French editor, because it is already out in French. We'll have to wait a little bit longer. It's out in French. I know. But did what she write I it say? in French? No. What, why is it out in French? She's Irish, but she's not Beckett. <laughs> You never know. So someone in France has said, oh, yes, please, we'll have that and got it in French first. Well, I suppose so. I didn't pursue the actual publication history. And of course, now you're talking to me. I think, well, maybe she did write it in French. I do not think so. But That's it was very intriguing. Oh, yeah, isn't it? We must, shall, we, shall we investigate further? Let's investigate further. Yep. Yeah. Well, that sounds absolutely wonderful. Now you have something to report, don't you, Lucy? <laughs> it's just we've had another letter from one of our brilliant listeners about snails, as mentioned, Saying to us, I won't say the whole thing. She says, I want to mention A.S. Byatt's Tower of Babel and her fascinating study of snail social behaviour, mostly in Yorkshire. I feel like I've read Tower of Babel and I can't remember. Well, you probably have. I have to say it is one of my, it's part of one of my favourite fictional entities, I suppose, the Frederica Potter Quartet. Oh, yes, yes. So, yes, I have read it then. Yeah. It's been one of the most one of my most treasured reading experiences, I think, of my adult life has been reading Ooh. those four novels, The Virgin in the Garden, Still Life, Babel Tower and A Whistling Woman. So I have read at least two of them, but I don't remember. Do you remember the bit about snail social behaviour? I do. Okay, I do. you're a better, better reader than I am. But not with any great detail. I remember that it exists rather than any of the particulars about it. That sends me straight back to buy it. Yep. Let's go straight back there. Always a good place to be. Exactly. And read it again. And then she says, fascinatingly, there aren't any snails in my garden in Los Angeles. I moved from Northern California. Remember the damage they did to my vegetable garden. I do miss their lacy and iridescent prints that they leave, which is a that's a very um, it's a very noble way of thinking about snails. But so if you don't want snails in your garden, move to L.A. is the moral of the story. Probably get other things in your garden, though, that might be just as injurious to your lettuces, do you think? I suppose so. I don't know. I just, I find that a surprising fact. And then she was very, very nice about the podcast, which modesty forbids me from reading out, though obviously I would love to. It doesn't but really thank forbid you. me, but you've told me I can't. It just looks <laughs> overbearing. But anyway, we really, to our lovely snail correspondent in L.A., Thank you so much. We really appreciate that letter and we're delighted to have you with us. Thank you very, very much. Do you think we should get on with the show? I think maybe we should. Rather than coyly suggesting. Picking ourselves up again. Right to us, telling us how brilliant we are. On this week's show, George Berridge joins us to pay tribute to Cormac McCarthy. We reveal TLS writers' recommendations for summer reading with fiction editor Toby Lishtig. And I'll be talking to novelist Brandon Taylor about his new book, The Late Americans. But first, 
Last week, you will have noticed that the American novelist Cormac McCarthy died, and we wanted to talk a little bit about him and his body of work. So we've asked George Berridge, who's the editor of American Literature for the TLS, and moreover, a long-time and devoted fan of Cormac McCarthy, to join us. Thanks for talking to us today, George. Pleasure to be here. So you wrote a brilliant review of McCarthy's last two books, which appeared together after a long silence last year. Can you tell us a bit about them and their very long gestation period? I'd be happy to. Yes, these two books are The Passenger and Stella Maris, which came out in October and November of last year. McCarthy had been working on these books for for decades, essentially. Um, He'd never quite managed to pull them all together, but people had known about them for a long, long time. I think the idea was that he started writing them in the mid-60s. So the first one started out as a, it was originally intended as one book, then somewhere along the line got split into two. And it was quite an ambitious plan by his editors and uh, editors and agents to produce it in this way. Um, I don't know if anyone else, any other living novelist would get this sort of kind of preferential treatment from their publisher nowadays to say, well, we can't quite make it work as two, so we'll do them as a staggered one-month publication. But he'd been working on these books for a very, very long time, and I suspect they are, they've become something of a personal issue for him, just because they are, they're very, very close to being memoir-esque in places, certainly the places, the bits which take place in New Orleans, where McCarthy lived for a time, and they're full of characters who are based on real people. Um, it's not entirely clear who's based entirely on fact, but certainly one of the main characters, the Bobby Weston, is the protagonist of the book. His friend is called uh, John Shedden, who was a real friend of McCarthy's in New Orleans. There is indeed a signed copy of one of McCarthy's early books to John Shedden available on, I think it's eight books for several thousands of dollars now. But yeah, a lot of it was a lot of it was very, very personal. And you can hear that in the prose and in the dialogue. It reads, it reads like it was very much recorded yesterday. Mm-hmm. They're about a brother and sister, these two books, aren't they? But they're also about the nuclear project. So yes, so these two books feature Bobby and Alicia Weston, who are the children of a scientist, unnamed scientist who worked on the Manhattan Project, uh, the US program to build a nuclear bomb in the closing months of World War II. And very much their lives are touched on by their father's presence, who kind of shadows over them. Both the children are, in their own ways, geniuses. Bobby, very much more involved in physics, but Alicia, a true maths prodigy, but very, very troubled in her own ways. But certainly the the impact of the atomic age, and this is something I touched on in my review, and it's something I've been thinking about for a long time, is that the atomic age really touches on McCarthy's works in a lot of different ways. They crop up in very, very slight ways across his uh, corpus. We have um, just towards the end of The Crossing, which is the second book in the Border Church, there's this slightly um, slightly elusive section, which is a little bit hard to wrap your head around in the first place, but it becomes more aware that the main uh, character, Billy Parnham, is indeed witnessing from over the, over the other side of uh, New Mexico the initial white burst of light from the, uh, from the Trinity Test. And this carries on throughout McCarthy's works. There are just hints of it here and there, and certainly of the Cold War and kind of the slow mechanization of kind of new weapons of total violence. And it's certainly something that McCarthy has troubled himself for a long time. And though he has always declined to say what the disaster that causes the kind of the apocalyptic scenes we see in The Road, he's never commented on exactly what it is, and he thinks it's he claimed himself that it was irrelevant to the book, but I think that it would be unreflective 
given the rest of his works to not consider that these two are some sign of this is what the world would be like if we pursued this path down a down the nuclear road you mentioned that there's a sense of paranoia and dread in the books is that there's a kind of anxiety which you say is is also you know kind of maybe post-nuclear and you mentioned Don DeLillo that also reminded me as did this at least one character named Bobby Weston which is a great thing for someone for Cormac McCarthy to call someone is there a bit of Thomas Pynchon in there too is it a kind of is he part of that late 20th century sort of build-up of atmosphere of of paranoia and dread oh certainly I think so I think that um certainly the passenger more than more than Stella Marison more than any other book that McCarthy has written to date really do touch on a real creeping sense of paranoia that was kind of pervasive in the time and in the, almost in the air and you can feel it in the way that characters speak in the book that there is this kind of sense of creeping unknowingness of the world that's going on around them and the progress of things around them and certainly this obviously takes its takes its main form in the kind of the MacGuffin plot line of the main book that Bobby obsesses himself with that this passenger jet has gone down this private passenger jet has crashed in the ocean when he arrives in his role as a salvage diver one passenger is missing it's not and so is the plane's uh the black box and this mystery is sort of important to the book, but not particularly. What's important is his slow decline as he has progressed, kind of progressively haunted by kind of men with kind of badges as they kind of slowly kind of exercise him away from his life. And he finds himself out of job and out of work in a kind of way that he can't really put his hands on. He finds, he finds himself kind of completely powerless and one friend dies in slightly suspicious circumstances. And it's really interesting because McCarthy has, as I touched on again in the piece, McCarthy is mostly focused on physical villains. He focuses on, even if they are not altogether human in places, they certainly always take a kind of a physical avatar. And so for him to focus on something much more looming, much more overreaching was a really interesting thing that he'd clearly been working on a long time. And I think, that yes, certainly there are aspects of Hinchin in these books, aspects of DeLillo, and little bits of Lovecraft in there as well. Of, of all the places we'd expect to find Lovecraft, I wouldn't have necessarily thought it'd be in McCarthy's works, but they're really, there's something of him in there as well. That's so interesting. I wonder if, if too, you know, with those writers that you have been, we've been mentioning, there is this real appreciation of the enormous strides of 20th century 21st century physics and of science in general and this fear I suppose that they are then co-opted for political and social ends but there's a kind of refusal with all these writers to see science and literature as completely separate branches of of human endeavor isn't there yeah I think that's right certainly with McCarthy McCarthy's interest in science and physics has always been of interest to people who have read his books for a long time certainly in those early in the early books one doesn't get so much a sense of this because the early books are set primarily in uh, Appalachia and throughout the throughout the west and it's only really towards the the middle to the end of the border trilogy that kind of mechanization starts to be mechanization and science and the rapid forward momentum into into some sort of panic that society faces, it becomes much more, much more important. The books become more obviously nihilistic, but also become more sharp and more clean in their prose. They become more focused, they become more distant in a way. And I think that that's one of the things that is really, that flows throughout McCarthy's works. Cause obviously the, the early books are a rock and they are ornate and they are difficult in places. 
And as McCarthy becomes more and more interested in progress of how we have moved away from, say, for example, the brutality of the natural world and towards our own man-made devices of evil, the prose becomes more pared back, it becomes more clinical, it becomes more cold. And so by the end, you have this really interesting period in McCarthy's works towards the end of the Boyle trilogy and into the road where the writing is really scraped back, where there's still some elements of McCarthy's prose in there, but things are pared back. And this rather works as a mirror to how technology has kind of impacted the world, that things have become much more clean and focused and clinical. And we have moved away from the kind of the Baroque romanticism, even in its darkest forms of nature. And we are somewhere colder and more distant in the future. Mm. I mean, I have to say they weren't a laugh a minute before, <laughs> before he got worried about, I mean, I'm being very crude, but you know what I mean? As you said, it's about the earlier ones are more like the kind of brutality of nature and living with the land and then it's a different sort of brutality isn't it but it's it's not like there were the sunlit uplands beforehand you say in the piece that, that before he got the nba award in 1992 for all the pretty horses he was like a writer's writer he was sort of mm. you know and pe people knew who he was but he wasn't sort of he wasn't hugely popular he later became very well known and successful do you think this was partly the films because there have been some very successful films made of his stuff or would he have been recognized kind of generally as a master anyway well i think this is a, a really really interesting question i think that there's a lot of this which is being discussed uh after his death there was a really interesting piece in the i believe it was the new york times opinion column just the other day on how mccarthy was very much while he was a man of considerable and unique talents he was also very much a product of his age it's hard to imagine that a writer could have the same sort of career trajectory that mccarthy had now i mean mccarthy's genesis as a writer came in a way that now feels almost completely alien that he sent off the manuscript to his his first book the orchard keeper off to random house off to albert erskine at Random House, who had been Faulkner's agent and was therefore the only agent that, editor, sorry, um, who's the only editor that McCarthy had heard of. And he sent off the typescript and sent it to him. And Erskine thought there was some work that he was doing on, but recognized that this was an original voice and pushed within Random House to make it work. He sent early copies of the first book to Truman Capote and to Saul Bellow. And Saul Bellow was kind of a, a very, very early adopter and had a lot of positive things to say about McCarthy's early works it's very very hard to imagine how a novelist could have a career like that now before mm, yeah. even when Blood Meridian which is largely considered to be kind of his masterpiece that came out in 85 and up until that point none of his books had sold more than 5,000 copies it was towards the end of uh, Blood Meridian that Alvin Erskine began to retire from his job as McCarthy's editor but he'd been pushing for him consistently ever since the start of his career and none of his books had ever sold in the UK I believe they were out of print I believe Blood Meridian Gosh. didn't come out in the UK until 1989 which is when it was first reviewed in the TLS but certainly it's hard to imagine anyone could do that these days but yes with 1992 came around and Albert Erskine had just passed away and he'd moved on to in a slightly difficult place as a writer and then certainly yes then uh, all the pretty horses won won the National Book Award in America and suddenly became kind of the New York Times bestseller and he came everywhere. That was followed by a not wholly brilliant film, an adaptation of All the Pretty Horses, directed by Billy Bob Thornton, which 
had a slightly troubled production. Uh, it began as a, a very, very, very long cut of the film. Billy Bob Thornton's original cut was two and a half, three hours. And the Weinstein company got involved, Harvey Weinstein, who at that point, as we all know, despite everything else that went on, uh, was very, very involved in film production, was known for being very brutal with his cuts. And All the Pretty Horses was one of the films that suffered under that. And it had a slightly mixed reception, but after that, certainly there was a period where his works were adapted. So there has been the adaptation of uh, No Country for Old Men, which originally started life as a screenplay. It's dreadful. Oh, really? Because that's amazing, because the film really isn't. It's true. The, the, the story is that the, he wrote a screenplay for it. And, you know, you can, if you know the right, if you know the right people, you can dig out this original screenplay. And it's awful. It doesn't work at all. And McCarthy couldn't find anyone to make it and stuck it into a desk drawer. And then several years later, when he had a kind of gap in his projects and wasn't doing anything, he took it out and just turned it into a novel. And it was that novel that was then later adapted by the Coen brothers much, much more successfully than the original screenplay. And then, of course, John Hillcoat went on to make a that rather gripping adaptation of The Road. And it seems that, though we're not quite sure of where this is going to go, that John Hillcoat also was working right up until McCarthy's death on a adaptation of Blood Meridian, which is a film with a very, very long and tortuous adaptation history. I don't think I can ever watch The Road again because I I had to sort of go to bed for about three days afterwards. I was so complete. I mean, I just sobbed for about at least the last half an hour. They had a slightly mixed reception when it came out. I, I'm, I'm not one of the people who thought it was a failure. I thought it was a very, very good, very clean adaptation of the book. It misses out a few things, but I think by and large, it, it really gets to the core. And what it touches on is a thing that I think is often overlooked in McCarthy's works is it touches on a kind of tenderness in the darkest of places. Um, Sophie McIntosh wrote a very, very good piece on uh, on this subject, on McCarthy's tenderness and humour for uh, art review, I believe. And certainly towards the end of The Road, when you have that final scene where the father... Don't! Don't! Don't, 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 don't make Alex cry and give anything away. I am I'm a cryer at films because I'm not much of a cryer in life. So it's obviously suppressed, you know, it's obviously can't let it out in real life. Um, but it wasn't just that. I just felt utterly, utterly desolate by the end of it. Mm. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but I just did. No, no, no. I mean, that's that was that was the point, the idea, wasn't, it? wasn't it? Yeah. And so, George, just before we let you go, if someone who had never read a word of Cormac McCarthy, where would you say they should start? Gosh, I've been asked this before. I think the road is not a is not a terrible place to start with people. It's a difficult introduction in terms of its uh, its kind of emotional heft and weight, but it certainly introduces the later period of the slightly more accessible period of McCarthy's writing. I would think that if anyone was if anyone was feeling brave, I would certainly recommend trying Blood Meridian, but be aware that it's uh, it's not easy going all the way through. Mm. No, unlike the rest of or indeed um... any of the way through <laughs> no quite that's true honest. it doesn't end on a big laugh but i would heartily recommend it too yes george thank you very much for sharing your deep knowledge and expertise on Cormac mccarthy with us it's been a pleasure thank you so much for having me and now we turn from one writer to many because this week we have our summer books feature when we ask some of our writers to tell us what they're planning to read on the beach or the sun lounger or in the cool of a library this summer here to help talk us through these choices is our own Toby Lishtig, the TLS's fiction editor. Welcome, Toby. 
Hello. Toby, weren't we just doing Christmas books and books of the year about three minutes ago? Yeah, and then actually it occurred to me, I think we were doing summer books about four minutes ago. I can't remember who it was who said, when you get to the age of 70, you feel like you're having lunch every 15 minutes. But I'm (laughs) I'm not yet 70, and I certainly feel like that with summer books. I don't think that sounds too bad, having lunch every 15 minutes. That's quite nice. No, I fear it's not so much the nice things like lunch that come around quickly, but the grim things like, you know, your car tax. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, 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 it is, it is, however, summer. It is. It this is, is not a grim thing. This Again, is a fun thing. this is a super fun thing. So I want to say to Toby, well, both of you, but Toby first, have you noticed any recurring themes or people this time in the roundups? Why, yes, Lucy. Funny you should <laughs> ask that, because having perused the summer books uh, list, I couldn't help noticing it's a bit of a Homeric summer. Yeah, he's everywhere, Homer. This new writer called Homer. You think TLS classicists Mary Beard and Peter Thoneman had had already, you know, had their fill of Homer, but it turns out, no, they will be taking Homer. Do you think they haven't read that one yet? Well, you know, assiduously rereading, but books about Homer and new versions of Homer to the beach, along with A.E. Stallings, who also is a a classicist of sorts. She's also their their new um, Oxford professor of poetry, but she knows a great deal about Greece, both ancient and modern, and she too is going to be rereading Homer on the beach. So in a way, it's exactly what you expect from um, TLS contributors, isn't it? Well, I don't know. I, yes, I suppose I remember one year there was things like Herodotus and then sort of more, uh, you know, and then a bit of sort of Dan Brown. I mean, it probably wasn't Dan Brown, but, you know, there was a lot between the two. But, but Homer is really, you don't you don't often get that much Homer. It's partly because there, there's a new translation. There's, there's Emily Wilson's translation, isn't there? And then there's also um, Roman Lane Fox's new book, Homer and His Iliad. And I like what Mary Beard actually says. He says, Roman Lane Fox is always one of those classicists with whom I always find myself in disagreement. But at the same time, I always like the way he annoys me. <laughs> yeah, I just think it's so brilliantly put. And I would say the same thing. I don't know if either of you has read his work on gardening, because he's also, I don't want to hop on about this. He really is a gardener. He's a gardener. Of, he's the head gardener, or maybe there's a grander title for New College, Oxford, and I think maybe another college and has been for many years. And he's written a lot about gardening and it's brilliant, a lot of it. But also I disagree with great amounts. of Lucy, it. this says to me we should have him on to talk about gardening. Oh, gosh. I mean, very clearly. It would be brilliant. And then probably there would be fierce disagreements. But what is it, Toby, you said that Mary said she likes the way he annoys her or something? Yes, exactly. Um, She says, um, but at the same time, I always like the way he annoys me. He's perhaps a tad too conservative, a bit too old-fashioned Oxonian. Yeah, I like the way he annoys me. And it's good. Yeah, you know, that's what you want, isn't it? Fertile disagreement. Let's have him on about gardening, because otherwise it's just you and me agreeing about how peonies are difficult. (laughs) To be honest, <laughs> anyway, about snails, but we won't go back to snails. <laughs> <laughs> Any other themes, Toby, or people, or anything? Um, there's a little there's sort of a mini Berlin theme. Paul Griffiths has chosen Jenny Erpenbeck's new novel, Kairos, which um, has just been reviewed uh, in the TLS. Our reviewer actually didn't love it very much. Kevin Brazil, he had problems with it. I've read it, and I absolutely love it. I think it's extraordinary. So without wishing to tell you to do the opposite of what the TLS has told you to do, I urge you to read Kyra. I think it's really, really good. But Yes, I've read it and I agree. I think I agree more with you than Kevin. Good. OK. He's put forward an interesting argument. But I just happen to not agree with it. Very briefly, it's set sort of before, during and very, very briefly after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And it's about this love affair between a uh, much older man and a younger woman. It sort of plays out against this political backdrop. But Paul Griffiths has chosen that partly because he's a big fan of Erpenbeck and he was very, very seized by the first line in this book which is will you come to my funeral quite a good opening line isn't it 
I interviewed her recently for the Irish Times and I was incredible. She's obviously somebody who's very, very interesting to interview. All her books thus far have been fascinating and she has a kind of fascinating backstory. You know, she's an East German. She also had a whole background in opera yes. direction. So, you know, many different strands to talk about, but her central sort of theme when talking about the book is how long it took her to be able to write about the experience of growing up in East Germany and what the loss of that whole society does to someone who from whom it, you know your sort of past is just taken away from you and this really comes out in in Kairos doesn't it? It really does yeah it comes out very very brilliantly the sort of the it's all these assumptions in this world that's been built on certain values is just completely upended and everyone's just supposed to kind of readjust to the new reality within about 15 minutes but of course they can't and I do I like that idea of it in order to write properly about any given period there needs to be a you know a period of time to reflect back on you know you don't want to be too uh, straight jacketing about these things but I, I've often thought that you know we tend to write best about periods 15 20 years earlier rather than writing to the minutes so there's that yeah. Berlin theme. And then Ben Hutchinson has also chosen uh, a Berlin novel by Amit Chowdhury, which we reviewed last August, I think, called Sojourn, which is about a visiting professor arriving in Berlin and trying to make sense of a foreign city. And I've partly chosen those two because I'm going to be spending part of my summer in Berlin. So these seem like very good choices for me. There we go. That's where all the cool people are going. Apparently. There was something quite poignantly valedictory about some of the choices, wasn't there? Because, you know, you've got people reading, for example, Javier Marias's work, you know, Claire mm. Loudon going back over Martin Amos's oeuvre. We are getting that sense of people reading writers who have only really quite recently quit the scene. Mm. And in mm. fact, Cormac McCarthy might, might have made it in had these not been assembled, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Mm. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, There's a little bit of a people mentioning Michael Frain, who is happily still with us. And there's a couple of people he's got. I think he has a new memoir out, does he? And somebody who was rereading one of his older ones. Yes, that's um, right. Yep. That's probably quite jolly, I would have thought. He's always brilliant, Michael Frayn, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, yeah. Many, many times when she hasn't been. No, exactly. I was very pleased to see something close to sort of my experience of the cultural texture and cultural history of living in Ireland. Francis Wilson talking about uh, Mark McConnell's new book, A Thread of Violence, which is about Malcolm MacArthur. And I cannot wait to read it. It's being sort of extracted at the minute and reviewed and people are talking about it. And we are running a very good piece in next week's issue. So I urge all listeners to look out for that piece. It's, it's really, really, very, very clever. Mm. Alex, I want to ask you about another book, which I know you have read because you've written about it in another publication. <laughs> Nicola Shulman has chosen Helen DeWitt. I know, I was so pleased. <laughs> I was so pleased. The English understand wool. I mean, I just, uh, I don't know what to say about it. I read, it's 61 pages long. I read it, I've now read it about three or four times. And so obviously it's a sort of short story, a sort of novella, and it's so sinuous. Have either of you read it? I haven't actually. I don't know why, because it sounds absolutely brilliant. We ran it does sound brilliant. Ago, read it. And, and as you say, don't do any work pages. after <laughs> no, you've done this. No, don't no. read it immediately. Okay, fine. Yeah, that's good. Seriously, everything else can wait. I mean, the descriptions of it are extraordinary. The quotes I've read from it, lifted from it, are just sort of the, sort of the precision of the prose and the playfulness of it just sound brilliant so anyway gone it is fantastic it's, it's really just about a girl who is brought up in the most extremely luxurious and moneyed surroundings but also by a mother who is determined that she becomes unbelievably accomplished in every single thing so that one of the things that will allow her to pass for example in high society old money society as we might say is 
is looking as if she's known how to ride since she was five. So indeed she starts to ride when she's five, is knowing how, I mean, endless piano lessons, whole jazz musicians hired for summers to induct her into the mysteries of jazz. And then one day she wakes up and no, her mother is no longer there. And it turns out that, well, we might say she's been living a lie, but then it becomes a kind of publishing satire. And that the, the extraordinary thing is how you get all this in to 61 pages. It's just fantastic. I, I don't think I've spoilt anything because the sort of twist happens very early on and then further twists follow and it's just wonderful. But even if you're not going very far this summer, you can read it on your very short train ride. You or really can. In your yes, or, or on the bus into town type thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is there anything either of you so then would like to steal from anyone's bag? This is a kind of slightly reprehensible trope that we've always <laughs> done. <laughs> Someone was standing in front of you at the airport or the train station. You saw their book tantalisingly sticking out. I probably nicked the Berlin books. I have read the, the, the Urban Beck, but I haven't read Amit Chowdhury's Sojourn. Alex, would you nick anything? I always love Amit Chowdhury's writing. I did think, because I've been greatly, I greatly enjoyed um, Deborah Levy's August Blue. I was interested in, I think it was Anna Picard, who chose Fiona Maddox's book about Rachmaninoff and August oh, yeah. Blue is, yeah. is, a, is about Rachmaninoff in large part, not entirely, but in large part. But my own thing that I'm going to read, it comes out at the beginning of July and I can't wait for it, is Laura Cummings' Thunderclap, which is about Carol Fabritius and sort of moments of, of sudden tragedy in art, the, the artist who painted the goldfinch. So that is the thing that I would really, really like to read this summer. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Great. Yeah, sounds great. I was enticed by someone, I can't remember who I'm afraid now, mentioning that Jonathan Leatham's got a new book out called... Brooklyn Crime Novel. Yeah, yeah. that's out in November. Mm. Mm. Oh, November? Oh, that's yeah. no good. <laughs> you might snaffle a proof if you're lucky. That's, you know, perks of the job. As we started with with the Iliad um, and with Homer and with, you know, some really what we might call high-toned reading, mm. I was gratified to see a lot of people shoving quite enjoyable things in there too. I mean, people, you know, Edmund Gordon, who's taking a load of tennis books away with him, is also going to put Judy Murray's debut tennis thriller. Oh, the yes, wild card. Yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah. I know. And clearly, I mean, as you know, I'm a great fan of a thriller. So, you know, one can read both. Edmund has decried the lack of good depictions of tennis in fiction. So he's, he's obviously related to David Foster Wallace, um, Infinite Jest, which is, you know, which is the obvious one. And there's Lionel Shriver's Double Fault. And he's the glittering scenes in Martin Amos and Don DeLillo. But that's that's sort of about it. I think that's I was, pretty I, good. I thought that was not bad. <laughs> but I, I, was, I was wondering. I mean, obviously Jeff Dyer is another person, but he doesn't happen in his fiction so much. I was wondering whether Edmund's wrong, but I suspect he isn't. And of course, what I have. What I haven't done is Googled this in preparation for the podcast. So. I've immediately wondered whether he was he sort of clearing the ground there for his own tennis novel. Edmund, come on and tell us about your own tennis novel that we've now decided you're writing. Yeah, that would be good to know. <laughs> I was intrigued to read that Russell, Russell Williams, our, our French editor, he's going to have a, some light summer reading and he's given himself Gravity's Rainbow <laughs> and then said a couple of other things that he's going to read as well. So I think we should get him on in September and say, did you read yeah, it? Yeah, did you do it? Now, I love a summer rereading project or actually 
why am I saying that? It's quite often not rereading. It's reading for the first time something really chunky and generally old, but I haven't got one this year. What should I have? Toby, you're the fiction editor of the Times Literary Supplement. What do you think it should be? I've got a rereading project that isn't a rereading project, which is to read a book which I think I probably claim to have read in the past, but haven't. Does that count as rereading? Yes. That is David Copperfield. And the reason is, I know, shock horror, I haven't read David Copperfield. The reason is I also want to read the new Barbara Kingsolver, which we've talked about previously in the podcast, mm. even Copperhead, which is, a, which is a take on David Copperfield, isn't it? And it just won the Women's Prize. And I suspect it is eligible for the bookers. I suspect it will be being at least the very least longlisted, possibly shortlisted and more for the booker. Who knows? You never quite know how these things are going to work out. But regardless of what the juries think, I just I would really, really like to read this book. And I thought to start off by re-stroke reading David Copperfield and then moving on to it might be a fantastic summer project. And to be honest, if I do more than that, then I'll be delighted. That has actually reminded... Well, you're doing Berlin too. I mean, give yourself yes, a break yes. here, Toby. I will. You know, it has reminded me that I've just had the proof, an advanced copy of Sandra Newman's new novel, Julia, which is the story of Julia Winston Smith's lover from 1984. And I thought, well, I can't possibly read this without first rereading 1984, which, of course, yes. one thinks one's reread, you know, perhaps last year, but it's actually about... 30 40 years ago and it's just so much in the culture that you actually think you're reading it all the time so I think I may reread that and then read Julia and see see how they dovetail together it sounds like a really interesting project that we'll be covering that later in the year I should also say not rereading because I, it wouldn't be impossible but I will also be taking the new Zadie Smith novel with me on Oh, that was one of the ones I was going to. Oh, sorry, Lucy. Have you all got it? Yeah, sorry, I do. It's not out till September, but you know, I've got the, I've got the proof. Share it. It's called The Fraud, and it's about a, a mysterious trial based on a, a real trial in the 1870s. So I'm I'm going to be sort of steeped in mid-Victoriana between David Copperfield and that. Um, mm. But it sounds it sounds really good. I can't wait to read it either. It's definitely on my summer reading pile. I'm going to be interviewing her at the beginning oh, of September. Lucky you. At, I know, at the Queen's Park Book Festival. Oh, yes. So I'm very oh, well. excited about that. It's her first novel since Springtime, which mm. came out about, I don't know, five, six years ago. And yes. I thought it was astonishingly good, that novel, and, and possibly a bit underrated. I, I feel like not, not enough people have sort of read about it and sung its praises. I mean, it was, it was you know, it's kind of critically acclaimed and all the rest of it, but I thought that was extraordinary. And I think she is, you know, very much still producing incredible stuff so I have very high hopes for this. So busy summer after all. Busy summer for you two and you've got all the books so I'm not going to read anything. <laughs> Go on then Lucy, what aren't you going to read? I'm just going to put my feet up. No I'd, I would like to read any of the books that you've got. The last thing I read which was new which was not rereading and I thought it was was the last the final missing installment that our house finally got hold of of the last Calvin and Hobbes oh, book. So wow. I got a, we got a whole new book of Calvin and Hobbes that I'd never seen before that was but this, but this presumably could have only been written about 25 years ago because he retired Bill Waterman yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's just that we didn't, we didn't have, have it. Oh, I, I, I thought we what's had. it called I've probably read it it's called something like snowmen killer monster goons something like that you know that one yeah yeah I've got the, the return of the something yeah yes yeah, yeah, I, it, yeah. I know exactly that one it's that's very, highly very recommended brilliant doesn't Yes, you know, he's, I sometimes think of, you know, sending Bill Waterman an email to see if he you know, wants to come out of retirement. Waterson. Sorry, Sorry, Waterson, not Waterson. Yeah, no, Waterson, yeah. Waterson, quite Waterson. right. Yeah. See whether he wants to come out of retirement to do something for TLS. But I, I suspect he's uncoaxable. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's had that idea. But seriously, Toby, don't ask, don't get. I mean, send the email. Send the email. <laughs> there you go. I will do. Right. That's your homework. And then we expect to see you back here with yeah. a commission in your pocket. 
that will be okay splendid. i'll be doing that evan will be writing his new tennis novel and uh, all will be well i'll be dividing my time between calvin and Hobbes and homer i think that sounds like a way to spend a summer doesn't it fantastic it does well happy reading all and also our listeners please send in your summer reading yes yes please do tell us what you have read tell us what you meant to read tell us what you started reading and couldn't you know couldn't finish or dropped in the pool and are absolutely gutted we, we would like to hear about all of it and anonymously tell us what you pretended to read with no judgment here toby many thanks for joining us and letting us know what you'll be up to this summer my pleasure lovely to speak to you Still to come on the show, novelist Brandon Taylor on his new book, The Late Americans, and on why he's reading his way through Emile Zola. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. When Brandon Taylor's debut novel, Real Life, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize in 2020, I confess I was a little trepidatious to find myself immersed in the world of nematode research in a Midwestern university. But in fact, the detailed descriptions of biochemistry were so brilliantly done that I was quickly gripped. And that was before we got into the travails of graduate student Wallace, who navigates the currents of homophobia, racism and class prejudice over the course of a summer weekend. Real life was followed by the short story collection Filthy Animals and now by The Late Americans, which returns to the campus, this time expanding time frame from a couple of days to a year. Taylor is also a hugely acute literary critic, writing on his substack, Sweater Weather. 
This week, he's on a Whistle Stop UK publication tour, and I was delighted to be able to catch up with him. Brandon, I'm so pleased to be talking to you about the late Americans, but I'm also pleased because I follow you on Twitter and I enjoy every aspect of you cataloguing the minutiae of your life and the idiocy of contemporary life. But of course, I've noted that you've just traveled to the UK and you're already, I don't know, would it be fair to say that you're both slightly weirded out by it, but also delighted by it? I think that's a fair assessment. I think that that is the accurate assessment of my feeling <laughs> about being in the UK. I both really love it and also I find it deeply strange and unsettling. I get that you like boots and the chemist and the things that you can buy in boots, but also that you think the whole thing is pretty much like a Victorian novel and you understand why women were always fainting in Victorian novels. Yes. Well, I mean, I got out of the airport yesterday evening and it was both cold and hot mm -hmm. at the same time <laughs> and, and also really humid. And I've been sweating a lot on the plane and I just felt like I was ready to develop a lung complaint and seek relief at the at the shores. So I immediately <laughs> understood so much of Jane Eyre so much more clearly. Yeah, exactly. Um, you needed to recline on a chaise longue and be bought a, a tisane or something like that, I think. Absolutely. But that's sort of my ideal state of being. I do think that we should we should bring back the water cure and taking the waters and resting. I think contemporary life really needs that. Oh, you definitely need to come to Ireland then. We are going to talk to you about The Late Americans, which is a book I enjoyed so much. It's a campus novel and I love a campus novel. Real life, of course, was also a campus novel, but this one's very different. Just tell us a little bit about it, about the kind of backdrop for it. Sure. So unlike real life, this novel takes place in Iowa City. And I think of it as a relay race in which we meet one character who then hands the narration off to another character who they've encountered. And in this relay-like fashion, we move among the lives of this group of people from quite a cross-section of lives in Iowa City. You know, there's a meat packer, there's someone who, there are poets, there are dancers, there are local community members. And we follow this group of disparate souls over a year, a transformative year in their lives. And it ends with, I think, like um, one of my favorite kinds of sections, which is everybody goes to a cabin in the woods and makes delicious food and goes <laughs> swimming um, as they as the whole book comes to a head. Swimming is always dangerous, though, in your novels. I'm thinking about the beginning of real life when they're all sitting by the lake, but they know because they're scientists, the group of students who we're with, that the lake is actually incredibly dangerous because it may have a certain kind of an algal bloom that could actually kill you. There's all this kind of stuff going on under the surface of these social interactions that's actually incredibly dangerous, is how it seems to me. Yeah, I think that's accurate. And that might just be because I, I myself am a trained scientist. And so whenever I see people swimming in bodies of water, there's a part of me that wants to look up that body of water and check for, you know, toxins and algae. And so, yeah, I'm never able to look at a, a body of water and not think of all the different things that could be swimming in it and whether or not it's safe. You know what, if you decided that you didn't want to go back to the US, I think the British government could really use you 
because there is something of an issue about the toxicity of waterways and coastal waters in the UK at the moment. I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but basically no one's going swimming. Oh, my God. Oh, yes. There was a tweet about that where there was some official who said that it was the fault of the people who wanted to go swimming because if no one was going swimming, they wouldn't know about it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what are you wanting to do going and swimming in these in hot weather in these lovely bodies of water? You're asking for trouble. I think you could be you honestly, you could get a top level job. I mean, they wouldn't be smart enough to hire you, but you could. (laughs) Um, But real I remember talking to you when real life came out and as a complete non-scientist who finds it extremely difficult even to work out how like night follows day. And I often find myself being educated very gratefully on this podcast by smart people who do understand things like that. But I loved all the scientific stuff in real life. Because I just thought I'm kind of learning so much and I'm learning a lot about the dedication of people to these experiments that take years and years and years to come to fruition. And I guess that's the same as being a novelist in a way. It is years of observing things very, very closely. But you write really quickly, don't you? (laughs) And so I've actually asked you about five questions in one riff there. Yes, I can write very quickly. Um, the, the first draft of this book took, you know, a handful of months, but of course the revision always takes the lion's share of the time, uh, especially with this novel. But no, it's true that science and basically any kind of creative endeavor involves quite a lot of time. And concomitant with that amount of time is like, a large amount of doubt, you know, you never know if it's going to work out after all this energy and effort and time that you've put into a project, there's a, you know, a non-zero possibility at the end of it that it's just not gonna come together. And when I think about the science that I was doing and when I think about the novels and the, the other things that I write, I feel the same about them, which is I never know if I'm gonna be able to pull it off until the end. And very often I find that I haven't pulled it off and I have to start over. Well, as you say, this is really in this particular book, in a way, is kind of even more of a high wire act than the than the other things which you've written. It's been a microscope on a small number of people. Here you have it as a kind of relay race. So the stakes are high because at each point you have to take the reader with you, don't you? Who, you know, you've just got used to a character, then that character is kind of offstaged a bit or downstaged a little, and suddenly there's a whole new person to get to grips with. I mean, that's a lot of technical juggling to take the reader on that journey. Yeah, it was nightmarish. And <laughs> I don't know that I would do it that way again. But no, it was it was quite difficult because, of course, you've also got to manage, you know, each character gets their own standalone chapter. But even when they get their own main moment, those characters have to show up in all their complexity and all the other appearances they make. Right. And so often before a character narrates their own chapter, they appear in one or two chapters preceding that. And so you've got to get them into the background and they've got to make an impression enough to make the reader kind of curious about them so that when they do take over, it's a pleasant surprise. And it's like, oh, I'm going to get to know more about this person I've encountered only fleetingly before. And just doing that, the sort of background stitching was so incredibly difficult. And at some points I felt like I was tweezing glass out of a carpet at points. It was just so... 
it just took a lot of waiting and counterbalancing and reading and rereading and just trying to make sure it was right. But ultimately, it just required a lot of faith in the reader that the reader would want to come along with me. And, you know, some readers will have more patience for it than others, and your mileage may vary. But yeah, I mean, it was quite the precarious <laughs> balancing act. It's, I guess, like, you know, we the reader at the party, and what you don't want to see is the crashing boar coming towards you. <laughs> <laughs> just when you've got into the most fascinating conversation with someone you think maybe you're possibly in love with but you don't want to have to be making your excuses to get another glass of wine or go to the bathroom or something but that's all what's going on in the orchestration of the novel but at the sentence level then you're having to manage keeping people engaged with this different manifestation of character I suppose yeah and that each each character gets their own subjectivity, their own voice and their own tonality and, and set of references. It was, but that was also the joy of it for me was I, with the first two books, I felt like I had this very tight, concentrated cast of characters for a very narrow period of time. And with this book, I was just so greedy. I wanted more and more and more. And so with this book, I felt like I was really stretching myself and taking on many more characters and many more different kinds of ideas and putting them into different kinds of situations. And so as difficult as it was, it was also a lot of fun. It was really delightful. <laughs> I mean, one of the things, obviously, that comes up in the parts of the novel that have to do with university life is the way that human experience and specifically trauma are that show up in art, how they are put to the uses of art. And that searingly kind of awkward and almost kind of skin crawlingly unpleasant confrontation of the first chapter which is about a group of poets graduate students analyzing work and one of them just is so over it so kind of mm -hmm. can't stand this idea that women are just mainly women they are mainly women there is another I think there are two men are there in the in the group of poets but mainly women are just essentially performing this appreciation of poetry and it was a very kind of salutary and it was I suppose cautionary idea of the way that we react to art and I wondered if you'd just tell me a little bit more about that. Sure that section of the book comes out of a uh, very real frustration I had with what felt like these received ideas about art and the way that life was meant to function and what could form the basis of art. It just felt like the whole machinery of contemporary life was so phony. And so I wanted to write a character who had my annoyances, but took them to a very extreme place. And I wanted to see if, you know, if there was anything real in the things that he was so angry and cranky about. And I think where he, hopefully where that chapter ends up is, in a place that you know says that yes these ideas about art are phony and they do feel really tacky and cheap but what matters is not to have the opposite idea of art but to have what feels to you a real and urgent sense of the kind of art that moves you and that you want to make that what matters in art is what's real and of course everybody's going to have a different sense of that but i do think that yeah, the core idea for that chapter is very much one centered on what matters in art is one of urgency and realness and that we should hopefully get out of these 
you know, pre-constructed postures of like neoliberal complacency <laughs> that have kind of taken over, I think, a lot of the academy, at least in the US. Really? Some of this, I don't know how much has come out of your own attendance at Iowa, which you don't live there now, but you tweeted from the Midwest of America for a long time and wrote from there as well. You yourself are from the Southern States. I mean, how close was it to your own experience of faculty life? In some ways similar, but in many ways different. I mean, my teachers were, you know, my teachers were, they weren't quite as checked out as the character in in the novel feels that his teacher is checked out. But it did Mm -hmm. feel a little at times quite restricting. But, you know, that wasn't, I don't think that was because of the program. I think part of that was my own sort of, cantankerous personality. But there is a way, I don't know, there was a way at least in 2018, 2019 of talking about art and identity that felt not just centered on the academy, but in all of like American book publishing about the sort of centering the self and centering identity. Like it felt somehow that we had substituted aesthetic arguments for therapy speak in a really horrifying way. Yeah. And I just found all that very boring and tedious and it had nothing to do with what moved me in art. But then, you know, I came to realize that that was just me being very, very cranky and that my own so-called aesthetic parameters were just as false and contrived and that what matters at the end of the day is like, well, what is real? Like what feels real and true and right to me? And am I pursuing that? That like one man's truth is another man's falsehood, you know? Like it's all very arbitrary, but I just felt that we weren't pursuing values that were inherent to us and that we were pursuing values that had been told to us that mattered, you know? Like it just felt very received. Yes, I do. I mean, what I kind of felt and what I took from your book or one of one of the ways in which it struck me was that you weren't say you weren't attempting to suggest as your contrarian character mm-hmm. Seamus kind of is that you mustn't write about these things. You mustn't, you know, that trauma isn't something that should be written about, that lived experience as, you know, that kind of constantly recirculating phrase. We're not talking about not dealing with those things in art, but we are talking about blunting any kind of critical reception by the Mm. idea that once you are talking about trauma, once you are talking about difficult experience, then there's no way to criticise that. All you can do is somehow perform a kind of admiration of it. Exactly. and, and, And that's what it kind of felt to me was what you were getting across so powerfully. Totally. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm glad that that came across. I wasn't trying to write a polemic. I was trying to write like a funny moment where a polemicist kind of makes a good point. Yeah. Um, yeah, Seamus is sort of like a stopped clock. He's right, you know. Yeah, <laughs> he's kind of accidentally right, isn't he? And then, and then you also think, but you're kind of a jerk, is what yes. I sort of thought about. And you would really, I would not like to have you in my class. The other people seemed a little bit like that too. And, you know, they come in and out of the novel as well. But he's a very powerful person to start with because it's almost like you really do lay your stall out. You really do say, okay, this is what we are talking about here. I mean, he was the first character in the book that came to me. And his section was quite, I mean, it was even longer. It was almost 
a hundred pages. And my editor said, well, this man is very tough. He's so tough to get along with. Can we maybe move his section perhaps out of the novel entirely? And I thought, no, Seamus has to be in the book, but we can we can look for ways to compromise. We can find <laughs> ways to make him not so fighting. But it's interesting that, that that character is the character I thought would that readers would find the hardest to enjoy or engage with. And it's true, some readers have found him a bit much, but I've been so shocked by all the love that Seamus has received. People seem to really <laughs> like him. Well, we like characters that are a bit much. I mean, you know, because they are actually characters on a page. We'd, I wouldn't like him in my kitchen. Mm. I certainly wouldn't. I mean, he'd be the person you'd be saying, you know, shall we call you a taxi? But he's he's good on the page. But then, as exactly as you say, you know, you then have this structure where you move on to other stories. I wonder if I could just ask you a little bit about, we're talking about aesthetics and the aesthetics of the novel. And I know I keep mentioning kind of social media and not all of our listeners will be on Twitter. Many won't, I'm sure. Or perhaps the habitué of, you know, the world of Substack. But you write a Substack blog is blog still a word or am I just very very old now no we I love I think it's coming back we love Do a you? blog are yes, you sh- I, okay I can say I that lo- can I yes I thought, yes I thought there might be a fancy new word that I didn't know but okay so you write a blog and it's about lots of things including like the other day you wrote one about just how you didn't feel great all day because everything was annoying kind of stuff I could read thousands of pages about because that's how I feel most of the time but you write a lot about the function of the novel, the manifestation of the contemporary novel. You write huge, interesting posts about your immersion in the classic novel and often in the classic European realist novel. And I just wanted to ask you a little bit about that, how important thinking and talking and writing about writing is to your work as a fiction writer. Mm, that's a that's a great question. I I mean, I used to think not very much because to me, fiction and nonfiction were so separate and not at all having anything to do with each other, at least in my own practice. But about a maybe two years ago now, I started reading a lot of literary criticism, and I found it really instructive, and it was actually very healing to read it because I feel like the American literary critics of the 1950s were were writing about issues that still feel very alive to me aesthetically and socially today. And so they're putting a lot of language to things I was feeling in my own life and in my own practice as a fiction writer. And then I started writing literary criticism, well, what other people call literary criticism, but what I call just goofing around online. (laughs) And I started reviewing books. And over the course of the last couple of years, I feel like I have really honed my discernment as to what matters to me in a piece of fiction, what moves me in a piece of fiction, but also how fiction works or can work and how it can operate both as a piece of art and within the social sphere. And so I find that the more criticism I write, the the more clearly I can sometimes see my own aesthetic project. And I'm now aware of myself having an aesthetic project in a sense. And and I also think that the things that I write about, like those things broaden the discursive terrain of my fiction. So before I started writing a lot of literary criticism, I didn't really 
write characters who had artistic thoughts and the fiction that I'm writing now, sort of after having written The Late Americans, fiction I'm working on now, those characters have so much more to say about the world and the art that they move through. And so the discursive terrain of my fiction is broadening as I'm writing more criticism. Mm-hmm. And so it it's had this kind of filling effect, but almost from the inside out, if that makes any sense. It does. I mean, I'm thinking I was just interviewing at a festival this weekend, the writer Claire Keegan, who I admire just mm. so, so, so enormously. And one of the many interesting things that she said was that her kind of whole project throughout life and in what she tells her own writing students is simply just to read better, is just to keep reading, to try to understand more, to deepen your reading process. And that is what essentially learning to write has been for her. I wonder if that kind of chimes with you. Well, first of all, Claire Keegan is amazing. (laughs) I love Claire Keegan's work. And I'm not surprised that something that she would have to say would feel so resonant with Mm. my own own art and practice. Uh, I feel such kinship when I read her. Yeah, I do feel that. And, you know, often in my creative writing classes, I assign writers like Lionel Trilling and Leslie Fiedler to my fiction workshop students. And at first, my fiction students would ask me, why are we reading, you know, this Lionel Trilling essay on morality? That what, what can this teach us about fiction? And my answer was always, well, it will hone your discernment. It will teach you how to read. <laughs> and as you read better and more deeply, the more of a text you gain access to, the richer, you know, the richer your own eye can be. And when you go to write your own work, you are suddenly filled with this like whole other level of sensitivity. I feel like as my own, you know, I've been, I've been reading all the novels of Emile Zola um, in his Rubel Makar series. There are 20 of them. I'm on book 16. And I feel like as I have read those novels, I've grown more sensitive to all these other elements. And so I'm reading Germinal right now, and the level of texture and detail that I can take in in Germinal, having read 15 previous novels, is so much higher than in that first novel. And I feel that that whole new level of sensitivity is very much present when I go to write fiction now. I now find myself described like my the whole I have access to whole new registers of my writing voice that I just didn't know how to do before that I now have access to because I've read 15, 16 Zola novels, right? So so in other but, words, that's what we should, so we should, we all need to sit down and read the whole of that series. And well, deepen per- that. perhaps not quite. Perhaps not Zola, but I do think that reading and especially rereading, it teaches you so much. I mean, and not just how to use words, but I don't know, it just adds a whole other level to your seeing. And I think that when we see better, we write better. I'm particularly interested, I guess, in thinking about when you've written about novels, particularly Victorian novelists. Sorry, Victorian is a totally UK centric word, <laughs> I should say. It's not a word that we'd use in Ireland or Europe, obviously. The European novel of the 19th century and 18th century, I guess, is one of the things I'm talking about. It is largely a territory of white European males. And you have written so interestingly in your novels about race and about inclusion and representation so again these are sort of such reductive words 
But it seems to me that Zola, who writes so much about disenfranchisement, about marginalization, you feel he would have just as much to tell you. Is that correct? Uh, I mean, yes. I mean, no one's reading Zola for like the acuity of his psychological portraiture, I guess. Although I do, <laughs> I do think. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I think that he is underrated on that front. I do think that Zola has some of the most stunning moments of psychological intuition that, that have ever been put to the page. But... Yeah, I mean, Zola, I mean, I read when I read his novel, The Bright Side of Life, I had never felt so seen in a book. And also when I read Lost Samoir, that novel is so powerful. And I grew up in a family of alcoholics and reading Lost Samoir was like reading a transcript of my own family's demise somehow. And and yeah, I, I do feel a, a real sense of familiarity or recognition when I read Zola. But he also writes about the bourgeois and he writes about the sort of moral vacuity of materialism. And that is like a theme that is painfully um, topical at the moment. And I just feel when I read Zola that I'm reading somebody who could be writing about what's going on outside of the window. And he could be writing about black characters in Mm. Prattville, Alabama, as well as, you know, white characters in Sacramento. His terrain is is the human heart, yes, but the human heart within a society of others. And ultimately, we are all in a society of others. And so, yeah, I find his work both like incredibly specific and also really, really universal. And perhaps universality is a direct consequence of the total specificity of his target. See, that's why you're a writer and critic. You just put, that's what I was kind of clumsily trying to ask you. And you've just exactly said it. Thank you very much. That's perfect. Brandon, I wonder if I could just ask you before I let you go, because you are on a wild tour of the UK now, you have event after event after event, and they are more or less entirely sold out, although I think there are tickets for some if people are listening. But you are a prolific writer. In between the two novels that we're talking about, you wrote Filthy Animals, a collection of short stories, and you've you've alluded, as we've chatted, to what you're working on now. And yet you came to, you, writing wasn't your first thing that you you did. You were a scientist, but now you're kind of in the groove, it seems. Yeah, I mean, I have a groove. There is a groove. <laughs> right now I'm working on this novel called Group Show and it's set in an art museum and it is giving me just fits. It is not going <laughs> along. And part of my suffering and trying to write this novel, I actually wrote another novel just to prove to myself that I could still write novels just to see if the problem was me wow. and it's not me. So I wrote another novel last summer, which my editor did not want to hear. He was like, no, 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 <laughs> please. Back to group please. show with you. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So I am I am now having done that, I am back to writing a museum novel, which is both a lot of fun and also just so stressful. <laughs> well, keep at it. We would like to read that novel. 
I'm so grateful to you for finding time out from lying in the humidity of London mm-hmm. on the chaise long to talk to me. And Late Americans is just a wonderful, wonderful novel. Brandon Taylor, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was a thrill. have time for this week our thanks go to george berridge toby lishtig and brandon taylor and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me alex clark goodbye <laughs>